take a look at how the faith circles that we grew up in are now different than the ones we are in. Uh, that should be exciting. As always, six in the mix trivia. Got a kind of a political topic uh, that Don's going to lead us into. You want to stick around for that. Be interesting to see what people's uh, answers are to that. We got calling your shot, taking a look at a favorite sporting event uh, that you personally attended. You were in the uh, in the audience in the stands and a feel good story of the week. And then uh, we're going to start sharing our individual testimonies and I'll be uh, sharing that for the fix your eyes session. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Ethan to get it, get it going. Thanks, Matt. You know, as I was reflecting on our time together this evening and um, this first initial topic of discussion, I just was struck by the reality that for most of us, we've known each other for the better part of almost 25 years now. And uh, since we were 18, 19 years old, coming into college as uh, fresh-faced freshmen um, or uh, at varying stages of maturity and growth, and I think as we look back on our lives, there's a lot that remains the same about our relationships, our friendships, our families. You know, we've even talked about the impact of our parents, especially our fathers, a few, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that I think would be interesting to talk about is just how are the faith circles that we are a part of now different than the ones that we grew up in? Many of us grew up in uh, the Midwest or the West and um, in uh, some fairly conservative churches. And so let's just share a little bit of that, kind of what that journey's looked like, where we find ourselves currently in terms of faith circles and, and how and why those are different than the ones that we grew up in. Ethan, I'll jump in. I grew up in the Phoenix, Arizona desert southwest and grew up in a Grace Brethren uh, church. And so my my upbringing was conservative and had uh, really good influences in my life from a young age. I uh, can't remember not going to church. And so I know from our family's perspective, that was a big, a big deal. And uh, church was definitely a, an important part uh, of our family and as well as Christian education and ministry. And uh, when college came about, got the opportunity to uh, go out to the Midwest. And uh, there was a little bit of a culture shock for me. Uh, it It was not what I had experienced growing up as a teen. And it wasn't necessarily bad. It was just it was just kind of a, a surprise to me. And really, the Midwest there there are some really conservative circles and some some great people. Um, but one of the things that I think I was initially surprised at was all the things that you had to do outwardly. Uh, it seemed like uh, came as kind of a surprise to me. 
But nevertheless, that experience that I had in the five years that I was uh, in college and spent most of those uh, years with you guys, uh, there was just some some really some polishing that the Lord did on my life and uh, really kind of shaped a little bit of who I am today uh, in, in many ways, um, have not stepped too far out of, of those circles. And uh, some of the some of the teaching that was done, uh, particularly in our uh, Bible classes, doctrine classes and other things, and just really, I guess, was I, I paid attention a little more when I was in college uh, than I did in high school. And that that kind of um, times God spoke and used his spirit to speak to my heart. And so I haven't I haven't really gone too far, uh, too far from uh, where my college roots are, although um, there are some some differences uh, for sure. I'm just I'm amazed at God's journey with my life all the way through and thankful for his sovereign grace and in, in placing me exactly where he, he knew he needed me and uh, just thankful to serve him uh, in ministry and be able to perpetuate the gospel uh, from one life to another, one generation to another. So a little bit of my journey. Thanks, Jeremy. That's great. It's interesting. Yeah. Jeremy kind of went from grace brethren to Baptist and yeah, I grew up Baptist all the way through until about three years ago, and now we're at a Grace Brethren Church. So it's interesting. The first experience I had with Grace Brethren was when we were out for Thanksgiving. I think we went to a Wednesday night service, and I think there was foot washing at that uh, service, and that was very unique to me, but very special experience. That that kind of you know kind of touched my heart in a, in a unique way. We had never done anything like that in the church that uh, you know I had grown up in, which is fine. You don't have to do that, but it was just a unique thing and, and to be a part of that for the last three years has been uh has been pretty special. But I think one of the one of the differences and I'm not I'm not so sure if it's if it's a great change, but you know, back when I was growing up, you know, it was church Sunday morning, you know, Sunday school, church service, Sunday night and Wednesday night. That's just what it was. And I think at least uh, at least for our us and our church now um, but you could kind of see it over the last you know, decade or two that churches wouldn't do as much maybe Sunday night, and that was maybe more for small groups. I just don't think there as much there is as much dedicated time for the the corporate body to come together maybe like there was back in the day. And I I think that may not be a good thing. You know, I know it's a lot and schedules are crazy and such, but and I know there's different ways to do it, but I'm I'm not so convinced that that's a good thing that we're meeting less together. So I think that's a, that's one of the bigger differences uh, where we're at now versus, uh, you know, where I grew up at. Yeah. So for me, um, I would say that, you know, grew up a, a lot the way, um, you know, Matt described, we grew up in maybe similar churches, I, I would say from my observations with a, you know, conservative Baptist approach and I'm still in a, a Baptist church, but the, the one of the major differences for us is it is a quite a bit larger church. So there's, you know, and Matt talks about the corporate worship, you know, we, we potentially have multiple services a weekend. So still uh, some of the members or regular attenders of our congregation, we, we don't see very often just because they'll go to a different service. So for us, being able to plug into a life group, uh, you know, small group of other couples that we can you know, do life with, share challenges and struggles and joyful moments too has been really helpful for us that we really appreciate in the in the church that we're at. Um, you know, with with being a larger church, one of the things that our leadership at our church talks about is it's a, a big tent 
church, uh, meaning that it's people from all different backgrounds, different denominational backgrounds, perhaps, or people that have uh, recently found, you know, convert, uh, gotten saved and, and become part of our church. So they don't have a, you know, a religious or church background. So it's um, people coming together and really the, trying to keep the main things as the main things that we can, you know, pursue that biblical truth, but still leave room for people to have some differences of opinion where, where it comes to be. So, um, yeah, not a, not a great deal of change from what I grew up with, but it is a little bit, a little bit different now, especially in the terms of the size of the church I go to. Yeah, that's interesting, Ben. Uh, some of the, some of what you said there really resonates, I think, and kind of segues into my story. I grew up in a, an independent, um, fundamental Baptist church, uh, that was very conservative. Uh, there's so much about that church that I really value from its emphasis on God's word, its stance on truth, just some of the, the means of growing and knowing God's word and commitment to follow him and prioritize him, uh, pursuing purity and holiness. There's so much that I appreciate about it. Uh, but if I could describe a little bit of the journey for me, my wife and I are a part, are members of a Southern Baptist church that's um, a little, that's rather large. But um, I think the two kind of main things that I would describe our journey with was the church that I grew up in. One of the key components, if I had to summarize it in a in a word or a phrase, one of the key components of it was the idea of separation, um, that we need to separate from the world, that we need to be separate from the world. And I certainly think that as believers, I think scripture is very clear that, that we should be different from the world, um, but that we also should be in the world um, and not of it. And so one of the transitions that has really happened, I think, for me is what does it look like for us as followers of Christ to actually be in the world seeking to bring light and life to people who are lost without hope? Um, and to engage with our world, engage with our culture, not just be separate from it. Um, and that philosophical shift has has made a big difference in terms of how I see just the day-to-day -day interactions with neighbors, interactions with people, how we have kind of prioritized the church that we want to be a part of, um, that we want to commit ourselves to. And the second thing, an, an analogy that I would use to describe some of the journey for me is and this is not original to me, so I'll just use it as an illustration. But if you think about an archery target, um, an archery target has a bullseye and it has concentric rings moving outwards. And when it comes to God's word, the reality is there are some things that are crystal clear that are that are kind of the, the core convictions of what it means to follow Jesus. And throughout the course of history uh, in the church, there has been some differences of opinion on what the most of those are, but by and large, most of them through the history of the church has been really consistent. Reliability of God's word, salvation is by grace through faith, um, and, and a, a handful of others that we could get into. But, but the reality of that, one of the things that has been significant for me um, is understanding conviction, then persuasion, kind of moving to that next outer ring of things that God's word speaks about, but it's not definitively clear on, and that there's there can be some freedom for differences of opinion in that. Um, and then the last area is just kind of opinion. And so I use that analogy to describe kind of the the journey of moving from or of evaluating what should be in that conviction bullseye versus what should not be and what maybe is a, a persuasion or an opinion, and and seeing that 
just looking at God's word and evaluating for myself and for us as a family, what does it look like and what church accurately reflects the way that we see and understand God's word. And that could be in areas like, uh, I know for, for me growing up, going to the movies was considered a, a sin. Um, and so evaluating, well, is that really a conviction or is that a persuasion that some people might take a stance on? And that's okay. I'm not saying that it's wrong for someone to do that, but where we, the weight that we place on things as being definitively true and undeniably, uh, there's undeniably room for people to have a difference of opinion according to God's word significantly impacts that. And so for me, that journey has been really uh, a significant part of the church that we're a part of. And theologically, you know, there's not much different from the church that we're a part of in terms of those core foundational convictions. But there are things that that I think um, are major differences in some of those areas that I would say are more persuasions or opinions. So that's, that's me. I'll just, I'm just curious what the rest of you would say to this. I, I guess I just have a follow-up question because I, I think back to my life and if you're anything like me, obviously when we're kids, we typically go with what our parents say and we're, we're in that church setting. And so we think we're right. And this is exactly the way to go. And I think I dealt with a lot of that as I grew up thinking, oh yeah, this is, there, there's no better church structure or setting or denomination than what I'm in right now. And probably anybody across the denominational spectrum thinks that, but I'm curious if any of you guys ever fought that and thought, you know, I, I do see problems with the church I'm in. And I'd like to re resolve that someday when I get out on my own. Well, right. Yeah, that's a good question. And kind of where I was kind of geared towards, too, because like like Ethan and also, I mean, Matt and I grew up in the same church. And, um, you know, the faith circle I'm involved with now compared to with what I with what I was growing up with is very different. I was, you know, like. Like Ryan said, you know, you're kind of defined by, you know, the church setting you're in now and what your parents are. And that's definitely how I was. I mean, I was ultimately defined by my parents and the church I was attending. And, you know, this is, it's a delicate question and one I'm going to, I kind of struggle with answering um, without sounding resentful because um, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm very appreciative for the, you know, the biblical teaching and the sound doctrine I was, re I received. Because it went a long way into you know grounding me to where I'm now, uh, but having said that, there's also a, a very a dark side to it that I'm sure a lot of people who may listen to our podcast know what I'm talking about. And it was that kind of that bend that oftentimes resorted in legalism and a point of view that may have been in its maybe perhaps in its truest form it was you know, dare I say innocent, but in reality it it could be very harmful and destructive. I started going to Pills, Pillsbury at a, at a little bit different time before you guys. Um, it was a little, a little different. I maybe Ethan, maybe it was. I can't remember exactly, but we had we had some different professors employed at uh, uh, at Pillsbury when I when I started going there in 1999, and um, there are some different views than with these professors than probably what the school realized. But having said that, it was really, really helpful to me, to be honest, because I was able, you know, to me, it, I was being fed something different than I would, what I grew up with. I was hearing points of views and ideas that may have been very, you know, radical, uh, for lack of a better word. 
Uh, for instance, for, I'll give you an example. I remember talking about in one of our classes in freshman. Uh, I can't remember which. I can't remember which class it was, but uh, they talked about lifestyle evangelism. And I don't know if you guys remember this. Was pretty kind of big in the '90s, but. I, and I actually Googled it just a, a little bit ago just to get at a definition for you guys. But it's, a, it's an evangelism strategy that focuses on a, living a holy, winsome life among unbelievers with the goal of attracting people to the message of Jesus Christ. In contrast with other message methods, such as tracts, crusades, and media-based outreach popular in the mid-20th century, lifestyle evangelism focuses on building relationships with one person at a time through a friendship opportunities arise to share the gospel. And I remember sitting in this class, watching a video, and they were, we were watching a video about lifestyle evangelism, and they had the scenario where these two couples were sitting down to, for at a, at a restaurant, and they both had drinks in their hands. They had a glass of wine in their hands. I was like, what is happening in this classroom? Where am I? <laughs> it was crazy, right? I was like, what is going on? I couldn't believe it. And this is so different. And needless to say, I, I, I lasted a semester. <laughs> I mean, I, there are a lot of other, other circumstances, but then I started going to, I transferred to Northland Baptist Bible College. Now that's a whole other story I could go down uh, but uh, but the point I wanted to make is that it, it I, I think I was so sheltered I was so isolated like and and kind of what Ethan was talking about separated that I didn't know what to do with a different take idea philosophy or a, a method and I really had a hard time adjusting to thinking on my own critically and thinking on my own of coming up with my own spiritually based worldview so I grew up you know, not so far from, I don't know. I I guess for me, you know, when I when I talk about how I grew up with my kids, it seems completely foreign to me now, right? It's so foreign to me, and I can't believe that that was, uh, you know, a part of you know how I grew up. But it also shaped me and formed me to who I am, and I'm still grateful, absolutely still grateful for that. But if I'm honest, you know, I'm truly honest with you guys, I, I'm a little resentful and disgusted. Yeah, I think uh, I think one area early on that was always a tough one for me to understand was kind of like the music worship philosophy, and because uh, it, it was, I mean, there was there was such good music outside of the the traditional, you know, organ piano, which I I love that, you know, played trumpet and you know like the orchestra, like the classical side, but you know when <laughs> when you start hearing people talk about, you know the plants are dying when we play rock music. I'm like, you're literally running with that. That's really what your take is. And that's like that. I mean, I'm like 13 and I'm like, that don't make no sense. Right. And so, yeah, I understand they probably had a pure motive with it, but, uh, I'm like the plants don't die because you're playing rock music. And they man. thrive with Southern gospel, baby. They just thrive. <laughs> my, that's my it. Yeah. My favorite was when they said they told us that uh, syncopation. You know, the first three uh, word letters of syncopation is sin. <laughs> That's what they oh used. Oh my! I, I never they, heard that. One. They used that one in chapel one one. Uh, one Did they? Time. Yep, yep. That was fantastic. Oh man! As I hear you guys talk a little bit, and and one of the things that, as I look back, I, I think one of the things that I was most shocked about was that. 
there was a tendency for the preachers to be so big and so just all consuming. It was like the church was, was, yes, it was about God and Christ was definitely a part of it. And there was fellowship and there was, you know, there was activity, there was worship. But I, I think that one of the battles that was fought had to do with the man who was the preacher had such a large ego and it was literally kind of, you know, under the table all about him. And when you don't have a shepherd who is willing to forego that ego and just preach Christ and, and truth, and that becomes the biggest deal. I think that's what I've, I have craved the most about the church I'm in with the fact that it cannot be about the person behind the pulpit. I mean, that God gifts that shepherd, no doubt. I'm not denying that. Um, and as kind of a, in a pastoral role, I understand that. But wow, should that come with some humility and some just groundedness, understanding that. I really felt like when we were in Minnesota that there were a lot of men who were in those roles who who tried to speak with an ego that was way beyond uh, where they should have been. That's what turned me off to some of that. That's just my opinion. Um, but that's coming from the, you know, the, the desert Southwest coming to the Midwest. That's kind of what shocked me initially was, man, everybody puts a lot of stock in that guy and beyond, beyond what it should have been. I mean, there was just an, there was a, there was just a pride that was carried by some of these men. And I'm thinking, how do you even, how do you even learn from this? How do you, how do you see Christ? I mean, I'm seeing this guy and how he's preaching and everybody's going forward, but you don't think so. So just one of my observations kind of that threw me for a little loop right away uh, and ended up shaping some of what I don't want to be uh, as, a, as a pastor, for sure. Yeah, we just had a sermon recently where it talked about uh, kind of a variety of the different kinds of churches. And, and we're, we've been going through a new mission and vision process at our church. And one of the verses we've focused on is, uh, you know, where it says in the Gospel of John, where, where Jesus was full of grace and truth, and that it's important to have that balance between truth and grace. And when you consider churches, a, a church potentially that puts truth too high, they're not going to think about grace. So they're going to be more worried about image and how people look and if their lives are all put together. And so we kind of, there's a temptation there to kind of put on that facade of what you're supposed to look like as a Christian, right? And then, but if you flip that and you put grace up too high, then you're more worried about feelings and you're kind of pushing down truth a bit and really just focused on that experience and how that's going. So really finding that balance between the two where you hold the truth and, and stand firm on the truth of the Bible, but you're willing to still be messy in front of other people so you can be genuine and have a real, you know, just be real with people so you can have that balance of grace and truth. And I'm totally plagiarizing my pastor's sermon. That That's a real high level version of it. But I, that really struck a chord with me that, you know, finding that balance between grace and truth and that, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And you think of the way he interacted with different people along the course of his life. You can see times where he was 
pounding people over the head with the truth. But then there was times where he just overwhelmed them with grace and love and and compassion. And, you know, can we find that balance? And that's important for a church to find that balance. Yeah, well said, Ben. Yeah, I would, I'll just throw in some two cents here before we move move along in terms of my my experience. Like most of you, I think the bulk of us, besides Jeremy, grew up in independent Baptist churches where, where there was a lot of emphasis on on the external. And Jeremy, I, I appreciate you bringing in the, the pastoral part of it too, because I, I've transitioned from that over the years. And what, what I'm noticing now, I think the d- main difference in the church I go to now than what I did growing up is we, we don't have we don't have that um, type. I mean, the pastor I grew up with in, in where I grew up in South Central Minnesota, no problem. But I will say there were church connections to places like Jack Hiles out of Indiana. And so that's the type of pastor, I think, Jeremy, where you said just too big, ego too big. I even taught at a Christian school in Georgia with, I think, a Jack Hiles wannabe. And it was it was during that time I said, I've got to get out of this. This is this is not right. I mean, there was so much emphasis on, hey, how many souls are you winning this week? And uh, are you wearing a, are you wearing a suit every time you come to service? It was just it was just over the top. And the other difference I, I would say for me today than growing up is that I'm thankful we recognize that good music can still be written, even if it's new music, as opposed to um, hymns. You know, you sing you sing the same hymns over and over again, and there are a lot of great hymns, and I'm a big hymns guy. But um, I'm thankful that <clears throat> the church I go to now has adopted some of the newer newer hymns that are that are out there. And I think just to kind of show you, some of you know what college I started out in in 1994. I won't mention it, but a very strict Christian college. And uh, I, I can't help but remember one of my favorite highlights from that college was uh, my second year there, my, my buddy and I uh, got ratted out by a couple of our roommates because we were listening to a group called Acapella illegally. Uh, so you were supposed to have all your music reviewed. And uh, my friend did not check his Acapella music. And we had two two roommates from California who turned us in. So I remember one night staying up past Lights Out, which was at 11 o'clock. From 11 to 12 o'clock, my friend and I were trying to understand what was bad or evil about the bass noise that the acapella bass makes. You know, the boom, doom, 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 doom. So he's sitting there trying to explain. It goes back to Africa and witch doctors and all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm just like, okay, okay, well, that's really interesting. Never thought of it that way, but okay, you're the, you're the door manager. I'm just a student here, so let's carry on. And, uh, you know, I, I paid a severe price, and that was one of the main reasons I ended up leaving that college was because I got, I got pelted with 60-some demerits and uh, for, that, for that music violation and not, not coming out and saying, yes, this is, all, this is all my friend's music. Bust him. It was just – it was chaos. And um, within a year, come to find out that same dorm manager was having an affair with with a Christian school teacher a mile down the road. <laughs> oh, man. You know, and so that you just – I'm not saying that's that's prevalent, but it's just a case of we're looking at these minor issues, and you guys have talked about this, and yet there there are some serious heart issues while they're trying to focus in and nail you for these 
you know, not as severe issues, I would think, in the Christian walk. But so I, I'm thankful. So since my time in Georgia, when I was a Christian school teacher, the churches I've been a part of have been very balanced. And I, I still am part of an independent Baptist church, but um, I'm thankful there's a good level of balance. We don't have a pastor who's looking to be this great authority figure who's going to rule over and make a name for himself currently right now. So I just wanted to share that. So I, I actually had the privilege of uh, attending for one Sunday, the church that uh, Ryan referred to down in Georgia. Here's my favorite I, I did, memory. I did as well. I did as well. I, I, share your story, Matt, then I'll share one. My my favorite memory that I couldn't get over. So they had a they had a baptismal service uh, or they had a baptism kind of off to the side. And uh, they got done with the baptism. And this, you know, I couldn't, I don't know if he was the head pastor, one of the pastors came over and he flipped this pulpit up like the pulpit was laying on the ground and he flipped it up and we were singing in like two seconds later. Like it was just like, oh, show must, you know, show must go on. Well, you know, it was just it was just like, what? You get the pulpit on the hinge. What's going on? Like it was just it was just it, it, you may seem like a small thing, but it, I just remember that it's still in my mind. Like what? What's what's going on here? And, uh, you know, nothing wrong with the hinge pulpits, but it was just, it was just wild. Like how they just orchestrated quick flip. Let's go. Boom. Okay. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Ryan remembers the story that I'm going to tell, but I went to visit Ryan, boy, probably three or four months after you moved down there. And, um, uh, and I, I'm sitting in a, we're sitting in a Sunday morning service and, um, we're, we're probably two thirds of the way back, something like that sitting. And as the pastor's preaching, <clears throat> all of a sudden a woman stands up right behind us and yells, shake that bush, shake that. I mean, right in, right in Ryan and I's ear. I mean, three inches from our ear. She's just yelling, shake that bush pastor. And I was so confused. I didn't understand what she was talking about. Uh, and it caught me so off guard. Both of us were dying laughing. We couldn't hardly stop. I think we both had to leave because we couldn't stop laughing in the middle of the service at this woman. And she said it probably seven or eight times during the service. Just, she couldn't stop saying it and we couldn't stop laughing. Ryan, is that a part of your independent Baptist church experience today? <laughs> no, 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 not not today. You 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 had such great interaction though at that church though. Like Ethan said, you know, you'd have another guy, come on, preacher, bring it, preacher. <laughs> you, you'd That's have right. waving. It was great. So Ethan, I got a question. So what what do you think she was referring to? What's your best guess? You know, I I don't really know. I don't remember if it was the story of Moses and the burning bush. I don't think it was. But uh, I think she was just trying to encourage him. Shake that bush. Right on. Brilliant. That's a new segment. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, good living. All righty. Well, that was, a, that was definitely a good, uh, good topic to start off uh, episode 13. Uh, but you guys know what time it is. Yes, indeed. It's Six in the Mix Trivia. All right, we've got two questions uh, per usual. We've got a uh, we do have a Bible trivia one, and then we've got our, our music one. So again, name is your buzzer. Uh, you guys ready? Uh, hopefully, Ethan's delay has uh, left. So it's all right. He's already beat, he's already beaten me in fantasy football today. He can lose tonight. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
I listened to that episode where we played uh, we played dive, and it's it's clear Ethan comes in first. I I think we got to flip the point on that. Like, okay, I I did I, earlier I did earlier tonight, so I gave it to him. Yeah, I think I think that's that's upstanding of you, Ryan. You are a generous soul, Ryan. You're. Ge- I don't care. I don't care what Matt says about you. You're a generous soul. Shake, shake that bush. Shake that bush, brother. Shake it. Amen. Yeah, yeah. My my uh, my thoughts on him might be changing based on that. I was. I thought I'd have to fight for that point for you, Ethan, but that that he gave he gave that up pretty quickly. So, Jesus cast out a demon in the region of the Gerasenes. What was the demon's name? Ryan. Go ahead, Ryan. Legion. That is correct. Why was he named Legion? Uh, well, when I played Legion baseball, that was post 522. So it probably isn't the same thing, but so I don't know. Maybe because there were many of them. I've got a, I've got an answer to that. I think the Romans called their Legion. It was, it was at least, a, I want to say, 100 or more. Maybe, uh, but anyway, there was there was a there were a bunch of voices in that in that poor soul, and um, uh, that I can't I can't imagine the terror of that man. But then I can I cannot imagine the relief that he experienced when they fled from him. What an amazing thing! But yeah, Ryan, you're right. It is Legion. I can imagine the terror. Uh, have you guys ever watched The Exorcist? Come on, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, Don! We just got done talking about we grow up in you know fundamental no, Baptist circles. <laughs> I was I was going to ask on that same note. I was going to ask if any of you have seen the the show The Chosen um, and the the episode of it that deals with Mary Magdalene uh, being possessed. Um, any of you guys seen the the show that just came out last year called The Chosen? No, no. Uh, oh, wow. I I have Ethan, but I have not seen that episode. That's the only episode I have not seen. Great series, okay. though. I, I would I would highly recommend it watching with your families or your kids. It's really well done. Not as a not as a plug, but you can actually download an app that allows you to watch. You can project it from an app onto your smart TV and watch all eight episodes. Um, it it brought my wife and I to tears. Probably more episodes than it didn't. It was just that really? well made. Uh, yeah, it wasn't cheesy. It's not cheesy at all. Uh, but the interactions, the way that they portray Jesus. Um, in the choosing of his disciples, interactions with people, it's powerful. Uh, and the episode with Mary Magdalene, I think, is probably the best. So more, highly more, recommend it. More powerful than The Exorcist? I have not seen it, Don, so I can't compare. <laughs> I guess we all got homework. Oh, yeah. Don, the Chosen versus The Exorcist. Like, okay, now I got three others to compare it to. <laughs> Good leadership once again, Captain. <laughs> All righty. Moving right along. All right, guys. I got I got I got to rally the troops, man. We can't have Ryan sweep. Can't have Ryan sweep. So you guys got to be on uh, Johnny on the spot. So come on. All right. Here we go. Yep. Here we go in three, two, one. Oh man. Oh, come on. In my weakest moment I see you shaking your head in disgrace. 
I can read the disappointment. I know the artist. For me, Matt, and I can't even get it. I know. <laughs> There's a meatball for you, Ben. Oh, man. I'm such an idiot. Who do you think you are? Ben. Alright, go ahead, Ben. Matthew West, Grace Wins. Yes! Yes! That is it! Yes! <laughs> I had been, I had Matthew West. I could not come up with the stinking title to that. Ugh. Yeah, Ryan, did you, uh, did you know it was Matthew West as well? Oh, I had the artist right away, but I don't know much of his music. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know, you know Ben has mentioned that uh, his family has, you know, really appreciated Matthew West and such. And so it's, I wanted to pick that song, but I didn't, I didn't want to pick one of like, like, what's, what's the one that's most, uh, most important? Hello, my name is Child of the One True King. Um, that's the one that's uh, that's the one that I thought I think everybody would get right away. So I picked a little bit deeper track on that. Nice, so. nice. Ben, job, thank yes. you. Yes. yes, yes, yeah. It was an O two count, but you came through and you got the hit. So. It was like Tampa Bay last night, but we figured it out. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. All right, that's it for six in the mix trivia. Going to turn it over to Don. All right. So, man, Ben, I'm so happy you got that. <laughs> wow. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy you got that. It's going to make me make my, my, my nighttime sleep just that much more better tonight. So, all right, gents. So, political topic. Here's a good one. If you became king and the U.S. became a monarchy for just one solitary minute, and you could make an, an eternal decree. What one change would you make to the U.S. political system? I like this topic, and I think it's. Uh, I think this could go a lot of different directions, and I'm interested to see where it where it goes. But uh, again, let me let me let me pose the question again. If you became king and the U.S. became a monarchy for one minute, and you could make an, an eternal decree, what one change would you make to our political system? So let's go ahead. I'm going to have uh, King King Ryan uh, kick us off. Go ahead. Good question, Don. And just an FYI, the name Ryan does mean little king. So just an FYI there. Not a I, I, I knew some of you would appreciate that, but know you've always felt self-entitled, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's right. Like Don said, there are a lot of ways this could go. I think where I've settled on with this degree is term limits. Mm. I think I would limit the terms of everyone. I, so if I, I'm OK right now with the president maxing out at two terms. Uh, I'd like to see senators knocked down to two terms. So if they win twice, they would serve 12 years. And then I would say for representatives, I think four terms would suffice for them. That would give them about eight years. And I think I think where it really gets unique with my decree is I'm going to do the same for judges as well. I'm going the no longer can you have lifetime appointments to the bench. And I think we're going to put you on either a five-year cycle or a 10-year cycle. And maybe, just maybe, this helps some of the off-year elections, uh, either the, the every two-year elections or if we did something strange like an odd-year election um, in an odd year, uh, that would get people more involved in, in the process, the political process itself. But I, I do think that 
if we, even knocking down the lifetime appointments from judges, I think we would see some differences in our country. Um, so I'll just throw that out there. That would be my decree. Uh, so we don't have as many life, lifelong politicians that get start bringing in the funds and they've got all these ties, corporate ties that allows them to get elected because they can be, uh, let's just say the, the campaigns get funded very well. I'd like to I'd like to see more grassroots efforts uh, in our politics today. So I'm interested, Ryan. What uh, as far as lifetime changes in our in our judges? What if if we went and went away from lifetime appointment? What 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 would those changes look like? Well, I think for the Supreme Court, I I, I think ten years is probably the max. And I do understand some states do have the capability of recalling judges. So it's not it's not set in stone across the country that if you're a judge, you're good to go forever. And you certainly can be impeached, I suppose. Uh, but right now, I'm looking at the Supreme Court level, and I think that those those justices should have limits on them because you know what they're they're getting political. This is not supposed to be a political branch. I, I don't know how you prevent that unless you just have these people who get set aside at an early age and keep them, train them up to be the most non-political, non-partisan folks ever. Everything has become all, – all of our branches have become political, and there are supposed to be two, right? The, the Congress and the president, they are all supposed to be connected to a party, but uh, the, the, the ones – the referees calling the shots now more and more, um, and they're getting more power. They're making laws, and, and I, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that just because they're interpreting something, all of a sudden something that's never happened in our country is either allowed or disallowed. Uh, that that should be part of the political process where people who are actually voted in by the voters have the say in what's law and what's not. So that that would be my change. Okay. All right. All right. So I'm going to gladly take that uh, throne away from King Ryan because uh, that lasted entirely longer than one minute. Yeah, I'll jump in. One of the things that absolutely just disgusts me on it doesn't matter if it just doesn't matter who's in office what the parties are is the fact that we just do not balance our budget we do not look at the finances i was having a conversation this came from a conversation i had with my daughter we're looking at colleges right so we're looking at bottom lines we're looking at the fact that Dad's not going to be able to pay a whole lot for you, kiddo. You're going to have to really go out there and earn some money. You're going to have to, but you're going to have to really be wise. So we're filling out all this, you know, scholarship information and and financial aid stuff. And we're going to try to do this so that she can get um, out of school as debt free as, or as close to that as possible. And I'm like, the bottom line is you can't, you can't borrow a whole bunch of money if you if you're not going to be able to repay it and i said really the bottom line is we're going to shoot for for you know um coming out with a zero debt and uh we're going to do the best we can to do that except our government doesn't do that and they preach that all the time to us they say that this is what's going to happen so if it, if i were king you got to have a balanced budget every single term every single time a president comes in he's got to come in with a balanced budget and he's going to leave with a balanced budget doesn't matter how it gets done that's what's going to happen that's what my decree is amen right. i like it i like it so so, so I, I like it too what's going to happen when the first uh, guy doesn't 
do that and he's got a deficit what's the consequence you know, i i've thought about that and and i think the bottom line is <clears throat> that it would go back on all of those who are in office that they would surrender their salaries or there would be some type of scenario where it would come back to bite them right if they've got all this cush to, to land on and sit on and they don't really need the the cash as far as i'm concerned they can live on a meager salary and they would get a minimum salary the rest of it would be recalled and it would go right to that budget deficit. How about so how about would, one year how about them. one year in jail and while they're in jail, the whole time they've got Dave Ramsey in the blowing over yeah. the speakers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something. Not bad. But I mean, at what at what point do we just continue to leverage out? I mean, I, I it just makes me it, it, it drives me nuts. My kids understand the reality of an empty wallet means I can't buy anything. And if I earn money, then I can and I can save and I can do all these things. But then when it comes to politics, it's just blown out of the complete water. And I understand stimuluses and you know all these things and we need to help people. But quite frankly, I think most of that, if, if churches were running the way they should and we were seeing the need of people and people understood that, I think we could do a lot there. But I just think our politics are just so far out of whack when it comes to money. That just bugs me. All right. All right. So, Jeremy, you got you down for some uh, fiscal responsibility. Looks like he's ready for the Great Reset. So let's go to King Matt. Okay. For for me, uh, this would be easy. It would be it would be reversing Roe v. Wade and making it that abortion is illegal. You know it, that that decision was couched in racism. And under the guise of a, a choice uh, of a uh, you know for a, for a women uh, a woman, and and though obviously we want our personal independence and not to be infringed upon, when you have life hanging in the balance, <laughs> you know that that choice was made earlier on. Um, so that's that life is not an inconvenience, um, and just tens of millions uh, have died and continue to die needlessly. Um, unnecessarily. And so that would be, uh, that would be flipped. Um, and then we would go back to where we support the, the sacredness of life uh, and we uphold life and uh, we take responsibility for, for our actions. All right. King Ethan. <clears throat> well, I knew, I knew that uh, several of those that you guys mentioned, which are all good. I knew those were going to go really fast. And so if I wasn't chosen uh, first or second, I knew the, the couple of those would be the first ones that were chosen. So it, it, this, this is my backup decree is slightly ill-formed uh, in my mind. And so you'll have to give me grace in terms of how it will play out. But the basic pretext is I would decree some manner or means of preventing uh, anyone in politics from enriching themselves based on knowledge that they observe uh, or of decisions that they have to make. One of the things that absolutely infuriates me is people who, and obviously Ryan talked about term limits, but one of the things that absolutely infuriates me is seeing people come into politics in one kind of level uh, of uh, financial well-being and to see the transition in 10, 15, 20 years of becoming multi-multi-millionaires um, in large part because they are trading off of 
the knowledge that they have and the privilege that they have to adjust or to make decisions and laws that that they are able to take advantage of. Um, and I don't know exactly how you would do that. I know there are laws on the books that prevent insider trading, and yet it happens all the time. Um, and so when you see politician after politician embarking on their service of quote unquote public service and finishing with you know 14 homes across the world and everything else, <clears throat> I think that's it, it's a huge misnomer. And so that would be a big step for me if I couldn't pick the ones that have been picked before. Ethan, this doesn't have to have anything to do with what with what's going current what what currently is going on, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it has to do with a history of things that have gone on uh, through a, through a number of years, and so it's in some ways I think part of the uh, part of the solution I think uh, needs to needs to be undertaken in some ways, which it's a little bit hard to find the balance between individual freedom and corporate responsibility when it comes to something like this. But um, yeah, I would, if, if I was king, I would snap my fingers and be all knowing enough how to solve it. Mm -hmm. Now, come on, Ethan, they're all just writing books and making money off the, the bestseller books that they have. That's, that's, that's up and up front and honest, isn't it? Correct. Yes, of course. All those books are so high on the uh, bestseller lists of Amazon and everywhere else. It's funny we we hear that excuse even given to like uh, Christian pastors who seem to be living a fairly extravagant laugh, lifestyle. Well, I'm not taking any money from the church. This is all my book sales. Yeah, yeah. Like interesting. Well, go 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 check John Piper and tell me about book sales. Yeah, um, and get back to me. That's one of the things that I that, that I really appreciate about our pastor. He he's written 14 or 15 books, but from the beginning he made the decision. He said every book that he sells, the money goes straight into the missions budget for the church. That none of it comes to him; it all goes towards expanding the missions budget of our church. And so, and that's true of every every assistant pastor who joins the church. If if they want to write a book, they they have to understand that that's that's what happens. Nobody's trading on the the notoriety of the church or their position. All right. So I appreciate that humility and uh, that eternal perspective in some ways. All right. All right, Ethan. Thank you for that. I got that. Uh, all right. Who's left? Oh, that's, oh, oh, yes. Yes. King Ben. King Ben. I've been waiting for this. This is going to be good. I, I, I know. Oh, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. I, cannot. <laughs> I can't wait either. <laughs> We're well, sitting he, on the edge he, of our chair. He, well, he's on our island. So he's on our island. We can try his decree out on our island sometime. Yeah. I mean, I so I was tempted to go with something like the whole government has to go with green energy or something like that. But <laughs> well, you, you are our resident Democrat, right? You, you understand that. So this is a, this is a pretty big moment for you. <laughs> Don't I let know. us down. I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I right along with Ethan's. I, I also like the concept of some more, um, more reform when it comes to all the fundraising that they do and and this you know uh, election finance reform because just the way that they people from all over the place pour money into other races to try to get political races to try to get their candidate elected we even have that happen here locally we'll have out of state money come into our city council races just to try to get certain candidates elected and the way and the money is so hard to track unless you really dig into where the money's coming from it's ridiculous but that's not the one i'm choosing the one i'm choosing is i'm still going back to 
the way the first two elections went in this wonderful country. And the runner up should be the vice president so that they have to find a way to get along and create a little more solidarity in this whole thing instead of being such polar polarizing binary opposites all the time every election i want whoever wins gets to be the president and whoever comes in second place gets to be the vice president and they have to get along for four years brilliant <laughs> that that would be challenging one i have a i have a secondary proposal too uh and that is that we could uh limit based on the based on the political office that someone was pursuing, we could say you are limited to X amount of dollars to spend on your entire campaign. If you're running for U.S. Senate, you get a half million dollars max uh, that you can use to run your campaign for advertising uh, for, you know, or whatever the amount is. Every, everyone at this level gets a certain amount. Everyone at this level gets a certain amount. So um, who knows? And everything above that goes to balancing the budget, right, Jeremy? Perfect. Check. That's what I'm yes. talking about. There we go. I like it. So, we, yeah, we've got so. So let me let me go through the go through the list here. We got Ryan saying term limits. We had Jeremy with his balancing of the budget. We had Matt reversing Roe v. Wade. Ethan um, enriching enrich, enriching our own the own self. And uh, Benny would say uh, runner up should be the vice president. Okay. These are pretty good. I like the way this is uh, rounding out. So let me uh, finish it off then. And what if I'm going to, I'm going to, what do you guys think of this? What if we had, what if we formed, formed a, a committee? Um, what, you know, where we, we, we come from these, uh, from these Baptist circles, we got to have a good committee. Brilliant. Uh, form. So let's form, I'm going to call it the truth and reconciliation committee. I'm going to make sure that every everybody is held accountable for the problems and lies and untruths that we are experiencing right now. I want a group of wise individuals to f come together and I want them to, to hold these people accountable for all their lies, everything that's gone wrong. I want I want heads on the table. What do you guys think? Brilliant. Shake that bush. <laughs> Brilliant. Shake it. Would you shake it, please? <laughs> I thought that's what we had with the fact checkers, Don. I thought that's what the fact checkers were for. Oh, is, is, right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, I suppose. Well, yeah. Facebook tells us if it's true or not, Don. And they don't have any uh, underlying assumptions or preconceived perceptions. So you're saying that it might have some some problems. We might not get the most. Uh, oh, what I, well, how am I say this? How, you know, it might be not the most. We we might have some bias somewhere. If in this. Well, case. yeah, it's it, it's interesting, Don. Thinking about your 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 uh, your supposition, uh, you know, who is deciding the truth? Who is doing the reconciliation? You know, if it's, uh, you know, the Republican Party, it's going to look a lot different than the uh, the Democrats, right? Sure. As we've seen in the, uh, so I, I guess I need to know more about your committee, Don. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I want I want those people to be, you know, wise people that know the truth. So I guess if truth is 
What is the truth? I guess I guess that's that's a million dollar question, I suppose. But um, you know, these people are going to be they're going to be uh, on the up and up, and uh, I think uh, I think they should uh, they should hold you know hold everybody accountable for what's going on here. You guys uh, still okay with it? Yeah, I think it's just hard. I think it's hard to come by without being without having a big old you know brouhaha election for that kind of thing too. I'll be on the committee. I'll serve. <laughs> Don, where did you get this French Revolution idea? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I, I, I guess you guys, you guys are, are really failing, failing my test here. He's setting us up. I, I'm I, not. I'm on uh, you, man. You're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. You're, you're I know where you're. I know where you're going. Just I do step. too. It's called guillotine. Pierre. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been proposed. This this Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, has been proposed by um, his name is Robert Reich. Uh, he actually uh, Robert Reich, is Labor Secretary for former Labor Clinton. Secretary for for uh, for Clinton and uh, also part of the Obama administration. He was is he from the Third Reich. <laughs> ironically, uh, no, he's not. But uh, his uh, he just tweeted out a couple of days ago. He says, "When this nightmare is over, and I'm, I'm assuming he means the nightmare of the Trump presidency, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It would erase Trump's lies, comfort those who have been harmed by his hatefulness, and name every official, politician." executive and media mogul whose greed and cowardice enabled this catastrophe. Now this idea, this idea has been been being floated around for, for a number of years. And so this, this isn't the first time this has come up. Um, And I think the last time this was actually implemented was in South Africa uh, after the, uh, the, uh, at the end of the apartheid. Um, Now I, I, I'm, I want to dig in and see where you know what 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 happened uh, with this and how this turned out, but I don't believe it turned out very good. If 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 uh, you know based on where South Africa is currently at right now, but uh, this is something that that uh, even the media has has uh, started to uh, take a hold of, uh, and MSNBC, uh, uh, Chris Hayes, one of their reporters, uh, was was touting this as well. So this is actually something that uh, is being bantered about, and um, I don't know. That's, that's pretty scary. Uh, I, that's why I kind of kind of set it up this way, just because I knew that you guys were going to give up, give us some good, good, uh, <laughs> good, responsible answers. I wanted to be. I wanted to throw it all off and 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 try throwing out the truth and reconciliation committee to see what you guys thought of that. So what are you saying, Don? Are you saying that your your decree as the monarch is going to ban the Truth and Reconciliation Committee from forming? Well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying as a as a monarch, as a king, you know. I mean, if thankfully we are not under this type of uh, uh, for, <laughs> of uh, of a monarchy at, in the U.S. Uh, probably for for reasons just like this, but uh, I'm just saying. You know, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee is, I think, is is almost like they say Orwellian because in I think in Orwell's book in, of 1984 they talked about this in some form, and obviously he was using it as a 
uh, <laughs> as a nightmare scenario type of thing. But um, but this is something that's actually being bantered about, and and I, I just wanted to kind of. Well, it just goes it goes to show you how how driven people are to to be consumed with the idea of having power. I mean, the ultimate rush, the the ultimate of everything is to be able to control it all. And I think people just cannot get that out of their blood and it drives them and it's driven our politicians in many ways to do stupid, asinine things. And then we have to live with it. And then we're supposed to reelect or, you know, vote again, people who are career politicians. So it, it's just it's just about, you know, how much power somebody can get and one party over another so that we can fix it all. You know, if there was a true fix, the true fix is get rid of postmodern thinking, go back to truth and find absolute truth is actually the real deal. And then we're going to be on the on the track back to uh, to to normal. But we can't do that because. We are dealing with a postmodern thinking where nobody has real truth. Everybody's truth is their truth, and it's good for you, and it's good for me. I'm not going to tread on you, and you don't tread on me kind of thing. And we're up. We're all going for power, and we want more of it so we can swing our absolute truth bat at somebody else's. It's ridiculous. So apparently, Matt, to answer your question, Don's one minute of monarchy uh, was just to get us to think wisely about these sorts of ideas. <laughs> I see. Boy, that it was a conspiracy kind of this whole this whole topic was kind of a conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it was a, I don't want to say conspiracy because I want to get away from the cons- idea of conspiracy theories. I deal with conspiracy facts. You can quote that. Amen. <laughs> Shake that bush, brother. Obviously, yeah, I wanted to piggyback kind of off of my rant from last week. So uh, I'm still fired up, just so you guys know. I can't wait till Fox News hires you as a political pundit. Oh, this is going to be great. I, I think I think he had lunch with Kenny this week. What do you guys think? <laughs> I will confess, I did have a have a had a had a long conversation with Kenny, and uh, boy, yeah, he's lost. He's he's uh, he's over the deep end. I'm not sipping the same Kool Aid he is. We're not maybe, but I I shouldn't say we're that far apart. But uh, yeah, he's a little. He's got to be our first guest. We got to bring him in quick. <laughs> Pre-election, he's got he's got to show up. Get, he's got to happen. <laughs> we only got one more podcast until no kidding. The we got to do it. We got election special. Him. Election special. Right. We can all That's wave right. goodbye to the uh, electoral college. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, move on to calling your shot. So I, I do want to just take a brief moment here and give us an update. So some of these calling your shot segments have been predictions we've made, tried to put on our Nostra, Nostradamus hats and see if we can predict the future very well. And uh, let me pull up uh, just a little bit of that history here. So a couple of them, one for sure, is is in the books. So early on in our podcast series, we asked the question, will the Twins win the division? And it was close, but across the board, we all got that right. I don't think Ethan was here that night, but he probably would have said yes. Uh, so we we can count that for Ethan. And everybody said, yes, they will win the division, even though, boy, it was a last last minute thing where they had to had to do that. 
And I think Jeremy came the closest for number of wins. I can't remember. Do you, any of you guys remember how many wins? Jeremy said 38. I know they were close to that. So There were, what, 36, 35 36. or 36, somewhere around there? Right, right. Thirty. Yeah, 36 sounds right. So Jeremy had the lowest number, uh, so he was the closest there. So the ones we've got coming up um, that we've all predicted include – Who's going to win? We asked the question, will Trump be reelected? And just as a reminder, Jeremy and Matt were the only ones in this group who said, yes, he will be reelected. And the other four of us said, no, not happening. And so that's going to take place in about a week and a half. Uh, hopefully we get the results by then. And then, of course, the World Series, they are playing game five tonight, right? Yep. Game five, game five. tied up two to two. So, uh, And right now, nobody in our group picked the Rays, but two of us, Don and Ryan, have picked the Dodgers. So their their Nostradamus hats are still in in play here for the World Series prediction. So that's just a little bit of um, of what we've done, what we've called out. And uh, the full NFL season, that's the other one. We said, are, are they going to get in a full season? We don't know the answer to that yet. We've had some interesting yes. weeks where they've kind of postponed things. Yes, we do. We know the answer to that. It's all about power and money. They are going to have a full season. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're certainly being creative with the way they're able to reschedule. That's that's for sure. Go ahead. We learned this weekend though is is if you're gonna do like not social distancing and no masks, just do it in like a private bar, private room, right? That that makes it all better. So God bless the New York Giants. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will not comment on their quarterback at this point for my sanity, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, God bless them both. Yeah, so anyway, tonight's topic is favorite sporting event. We thought it would be kind of fun just to reflect on our own lives, look back and say, hey, wh- what's been the most exciting, the, the most fun sporting event, professional or high-end college event we've been a part of? So uh, hopefully we've all been able to identify one. I will I will wait on mine. And uh, we'll just get the ball rolling here. So let's start with uh, Jeremy. Jeremy, what what was your favorite sporting event that you've attended? Well, I I didn't attend a whole lot of any sporting events in Phoenix when I grew up there because there was no NFL team when I was there. There was no Major League Baseball team when I was there. And so all of the sporting events happened in either California or Colorado, you know, as far as the location was concerned, I guess, Texas, some, some people would root for Texas teams. However, there was an NBA team and it was the Phoenix Suns, but it, this doesn't have to do with them specifically. Although I did go to a couple of games and we would always go to the game where they gave you a basketball and actual socks. They gave you sun socks. They were the ones that came all the way up past your knees. They were amazing. I, they were just great. Anyway, but my favorite event was actually mid-90s. A friend of mine uh, who I was classmates with, uh, his dad got tickets for us to go to a NBA playoff weekend, when the, or not playoff weekend, the um, All-Star weekend, when it was held in Phoenix. And we were able to go and spend basically three days wandering around watching NBA players. I remember standing at the entryway of the Coliseum as Shaq walked by, Michael Jordan walked by, uh, Scottie Pippen, Stockton, uh, Carl Malone. I I can just remember them coming out of the tunnel and just being absolutely in 
awe. I mean, just in awe of how, in many of the cases, how big these guys were. But just watching them play, uh, watching a dunk contest, watching the three point contest, and then watching the game uh, was pretty pretty outstanding. So that's that's my uh, just unbelievable moment. It's probably one of the first times I was able to go to something like that, and it still just rings in my mind very clear. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Before we had, I think several of us who grew up in Minnesota, I wonder if we'll have similar, uh, similar sporting events because we, we have the same professional teams to choose from. So I'll go to Ethan next because he did not grow up in Minnesota. See what he has to say. Boy, this was a hard, this was a hard decision. There's so many great events that uh, stick out in my mind from the, uh, the infamous table tennis uh, competitions between Ryan and Matt in the dorm late at night wearing nothing but boxers. Those, those were really significant to me. Uh, the, the, the moments of uh, playing uh, Madden football in the dorm at 2 a.m. on a Friday night and hearing someone scream down the hallway uh, in frustration, th- those were pretty significant to me. Uh, significant sporting events, <clears throat> watching Ryan pull out cheat codes <laughs> left, right, and center um, on every video game known to mankind. I am not a crook. Um, <laughs> Yes, that's what all politicians say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, King Ryan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I think one of the most uh, significant for me was uh, a number of years ago, um, I used to work for a professional soccer team uh, in the front office. And um, the head coach was actually good friends with one of the assistant coaches on the U.S. men's national team, uh, U.S. men's national soccer team. And so he, uh, the, the head coach that I worked for, had an opportunity to go out and watch the U.S. men's national team practice uh, for a week in California just for his development and learning. And so <clears throat> it worked out that I needed to go to California as well for a business trip for some other things. And so I timed it. He invited me and I timed it to be able to do the other work that I needed to do there at the same time. And so I got to spend a whole week. Um, sitting on the sidelines, watching the U.S. men's national team play, uh, practice twice a day. He invited me to come and hang out with the coaching staff over meals. Um, So I got to sit and talk with Bruce Arena and the assistant coach that that my friend knew, um, who's no longer with us. His name was Mooch Myrnick. He passed away um, four or five years after that. Um, But I got to spend a whole week um, and got to meet Landon Donovan and Clint Dempsey and Tim Howard and all the national team players. Freddie Adu was actually his his first training camp, if you guys know that name. Um, It was his first training camp and probably one of his last ones because he never performed very well. Uh, But I got to watch all those practices from the sidelines. I mean, two feet away from the sideline watching the practice um, every day and talking with guys. Um, and then we, we got front row tickets to a game that weekend when the U.S. played Norway um, in, a, in an exhibition game. They were getting ready for a, a World Cup qualifying game the next week, and so they were playing an exhibition game against Norway, so we got front row tickets for that. So that was probably one of my favorite sporting experiences of my life, just being up close and personal with guys that I grew up cheering for and just was excited to see and, and be able to watch up close. I had a feeling yours would be soccer, soccer related. So that's, that's good. Good to hear. All right, let's move on to uh, our, our moderator friend, Matt. So I've got, I've got a runner up. I've got to mention. So for about, I want to say three or four birthdays in a row, we always used to go to the Minnesota Thunder game. They always had a, uh, that was the semi-professional soccer team 
that played up at the Blaine Sports Complex, and they always had a game on July 4th. And there was one special game where uh, it was a tie game, and and this was back then. And I, I'm not sure if it's soccer now. I don't think so. But they actually had a clock. You could see the the referee did not keep time. They actually went by a scoreboard. And you could see the clocks uh, winding down. And we had a guy basically put it in the back of the net with like three seconds left. And I just remember going nuts at that. And that was cool because it was my birthday. But um, that was a runner up. The best uh, sport event that I was at live was actually the 2002 PGA Championship that was held at Hazeltine. And so my dad and I had tickets. And so what we would do is back then I was in significantly better shape than I am right now. So we would get there when the gates opened up. And, and, and we would basically plot, hey, where do we want to sit today? And I would sprint to where we wanted to sit. Okay, 18th grandstand. We did that on Sunday. My favorite day actually was Saturday. It was uh, it was very rainy that day, and there was a par four. Uh, I can't remember exact which exact number, but they actually moved the tee up. It was so hard. And we wanted to see it kind of like a dog leg right. And, and we watched all the players go through that par four and they all put it on the same side of the green right those professional golfers are amazing right they put it where they want to they have the best chance at hitting the putt and everyone that went through they they'd put it on this one side of the hole and they'd miss the putt miss the putt miss the putt miss the putt until young eldrick came through tiger woods came through and he put it in the same spot and it was when i was like i enjoyed him certainly as a golfer at that time but i saw him and he and he and his caddy uh, took a look at it and he sank that putt. No one else made that putt the whole the whole day, and it was just interesting to watch at one point to see all the golfers go through. It was such a unique. You don't see that on the, you know, you don't see that when you're watching golf on TV. Just to see that one hole and to see him hit that, you just saw he was at another level. And he ultimately did not end up winning that tournament. I think he came in second, but just on that hole, it was just good. It was just exciting to see the best golfer at that time. And, and, and why he was so good. I'll never, ever forget that. And the roars at a major are just incredible. And it, it, it was it was definitely a, a lot of spine-tingling moments. Yeah, I'm guessing many of us have not been to a professional golf event. So that's that's a neat, neat memory. All right, Ben, how about you? Yeah, so I, I was, um, I've been fortunate kind of in the earlier years of my career was able to travel a little bit for work and and attend some events which was pretty fun got to go to a nascar race in charlotte which was crazy just the number of people and the people watching at a nascar race is something i don't think i'll ever forget and i I was able to go to old yankee stadium before they put in the new yankee stadium out there and and that was cool but the one that i i'll mention at at this time is i remember i uh, my parents or my mom got my dad Vikings tickets one year. We didn't, we would usually go to a twins game, but Vikings were a little more expensive. So we didn't really go to those growing up. Um, But we went to a Monday night football Vikings game on Christmas night. And this was 1989. So I was only 10 years old. So I had to look it up, but it, it turned out it was a year that Um, The Vikings clinched the division over the Packers on that Monday night football game against the Bengals. So Boomer Esiason played and he was a lefty quarterback. I I was a left-handed person. So that was kind of fun to watch um, another lefty out there. But um, that, that was a really fun time. One of the first 
kind of bigger sporting events too. I was able to go to with my both my parents, actually my mom and my dad, and it was a lot of fun. I'm um, going to that game. I still remember some of the details about it on Christmas night, um, Monday night football game. Nice. Wow, that's that's a long time ago, 1989. That's that's impressive. Uh, all right, Don, you're next. So I'm going to say. I got a little, I'll, I'll start with my runner-up. I, I got I to gotta include this one because I was able to go to the uh, Game 7 uh, back in 2004, Timberwolves-Sacramento Kings Western Conference Finals. And um, I was able to – I was we were somehow got tickets to this game uh, with some work friends and um, was able to watch. That was – being – watching that, was it was just so much fun to be a part of that atmosphere. It was, it was just unbelievable. And uh, – Watching Kevin Garnett, Chris Webber, Vladi Divox, Mike Bibby, I mean, Latrell Sprewell, Sam Cassell. It was just fantastic. It was just great theater and it was so fun to watch. And I actually I actually got to meet uh, Sam Cassell out on the street uh, outside Target Center for whatever reason. He was just walking somewhere <laughs> i ran into him and shook his hand on, and this dude has the hugest hands i've ever seen i did you, you wouldn't think of it from sam cassell who's you know what let's see six four six five six four guard and uh, he had just the hugest hands i've ever it, it was just amazing but that was fun but um i'm gonna say probably the most memorable and it, it and it wasn't it was memorable just because of the people i was with and and uh, the circumstance, because we were uh, back about 19, 18, 19 years ago, I went to a Twins game with uh, a bunch of friends. It was a, it was a bachelor party, and uh, we went to a Twins game. It was Twins playing the, the Chicago White Sox, and we were sitting. This was when they were playing in the Metrodome, and we were sitting out in left field. And if you guys remember back in the day, in the Metrodome days, uh, the left field wall wasn't terribly high but you know you, that's where you got your home run balls and uh it was uh jim Tomey was up the bat and he crushed one out to to uh to a left field on a rope and the guy who we are having a bachelor party for caught the ball and it was all awesome you know we were like oh yeah it's amazing you know you got the ball well you know back i don't know they still do this but you know when you're when you catch the opponent's uh, home run ball, they tell you to throw it back, right? So there, all these fans are telling us, throw it back, throw it back. And the my buddy wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to throw it back. I mean, he's, he's like, for one, it's, it was a home run from Jim Tomey. And two, it was his bachelor party, right? He's like, this is awesome. Like, you know, I'll remember this forever. I'm going to have this as a fun, you know? But man alive, these people, all the Twins fans were just hammering us. We had to have security come down and they had to guard us because we had people coming down yelling at us, you got to throw the ball back, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they were all getting up in our face. We were, we literally had to have security around us the entire game until the game was over and have them walk us out of the Metrodome. It was hilarious. <laughs> My buddy goes to work the next day and he's like, he's like, oh yeah, we went to the Twins game. And then one of his friends was at the game too. He's like, oh yeah, did you see those clowns who were out in left field who didn't throw the ball back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have known him. <laughs> it was just a fantastic atmosphere. I don't know what it was about that game that just, I mean, it's just that that whole circumstance. It was just so funny and I'll never forget it. It was so fun. Oh, yeah, a lot of surround 
surrounding pieces to make that a memorable sporting event. All right, good. I'll, I'll just close up here and I'll, I'll just have a couple of runner-ups. They'll be so fast, you won't even know I'm going to have a couple. But I got Bo Jackson to acknowledge me one time. I was just jumping around to left field at the Dome and he was like the greatest athlete on the planet. I thought, I thought man, I got I to gotta get him to wave at me. And he kind of just did this number with his you know fingers to his head and saluted me. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and then I, I actually got to uh, – cover the Timberwolves game as a reporter for the uh, People's Press in Owatonna when I worked there. So that allowed me to get locker room access and I got to go up next to Zerbiak and Garnett. And uh, that was a great perspective. I I even asked Flip Saunders a question at the at the press conference after the game. So that was neat. What did you ask? Um, what did you ask him? Ah, oh, man, it's it's been 20 years, Don. I, I I don't I don't I don't recall. I, I think it would I think it might have maybe th- was Thurl Bailey still playing with with us back then? Probably. Yeah. It might have been his role. I think it was one of our forwards' roles in the game. If he wanted to get him more involved, something like that. But yeah, obviously I wasn't taking a lot of notes. I'm just like taking it all in from the reporter spots behind the hoops, and then get this great access next to these guys. So that was fun. You're probably asking. Um, you're probably asking Flip while Thurl Bailey did. Box out in your head. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You're, you're probably asking. You're probably asking wow. Flip Saunders if he had heard about the recent uh, about the recent episode of of, a, of an essay that had been written. Yes, yes, that's true. That, that was if he, if he was aware of that. Yes, we'll probably cover that sometime on our podcast series. But I that was right around what within a year of that event. So that very well could have been it, Ethan. That's a good that's a good point. My real runner up though is I don't know if you guys can see this ball I'm holding up. That's that's a Brett Butler. You guys remember the baseball player Brett Butler? Yeah. Used to play for the Dodgers. I was at spring training back in nineteen ninety-six in Dodgertown in uh in Florida. And it was so exciting for me because I was a Montreal Expos fan and I was able to go and watch the Expos in spring training that year in Dodgerstown. So it was it was great for me. I get to see my favorite, my favorite baseball team, my favorite sport, and I've never been to a spring training game before. So, but the best part was right, right here. The second autograph is Vladimir Guerrero's name. So he would, he he was a rookie that year. And of course he's now a hall of famer. Uh, So that was a pretty neat memory, but I'm gonna have to say my number one sporting event memory took place probably 1989, right in there. So around Ben's, Ben's year that he gave, we got to go to WrestleMania in the Metrodome, and and I got to touch my favorite wrestler on the shoulder, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, and that was so fun. I tell you what, I I have not been the same since. I never knew you were into wrestling. Where has yeah. this been? What? And why have not we had? Why haven't this? There's no how, way. How are we? What? Was there am, church discipline after this? I was this? just going to say, we just got done talking about fundamental independent Baptist churches. That was way off limits. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they preached against it, did they? So you don't go to movie theaters, but you go to WrestleMania. Uh, survey says. <laughs> Shake that bush. <laughs> What? Well, I, I I don't know what it was. For some reason, there were certain members of my family. Some Saturdays we'd watch wrestling. I, I I'm not going to name any names, but it was probably me, probably my mom, and and I don't know about anybody else. But yeah, it was crazy. We got these tickets. I mean, we were a poor family, so it was a miracle for us to get up to the Twin Cities in the first place. 
and then to go to this cool event and then to get up and pat my guy Snook on the back and him turn around and kind of nod at me. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that was almost like Bo Jackson acknowledging me. So, um, yeah, I, I thought I thought I'd just throw that out there because I don't know if I've ever told any of you guys that story before. Ryan, you're just a straight onion. We just peel little things away yep. and we just find deeper and deeper and more smelly things that just keep coming out. Smelly. Oh, I can't believe it. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry guys. I should have shared that with you back in nineteen uh ninety nine. That that would have been a good thing to know. But so that was like what was it, so like was Hulk Hogan there and everything? I'm trying to think if he, he's had so many different bouts in wrestling. I, I can't remember what his story was at that point in time. I, I want to say he I was, thought but he was later. Wasn't he a little bit later than 89? No. Was this like one of the WrestleManias, like with the number, like Russell? Yeah, WrestleMania. it was. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, this would, I'm, I'm looking this up. This would have been WrestleMania 5, dude. Yeah, oh, I, dude, I believe it. Yeah, is there tape? Exactly yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Don, do we have tape on WrestleMania 5? We can YouTube this thing, and I can tell you right now. Oh. Randy right. Savage and Hulk Hogan were on the promotional post. Oh, Come on. Yes. absolutely. Wow. absolutely. We might have to do a little recon of the video and determine if we can spot little Ryan Jr. A little king. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to say maybe Ultimate Warrior was around yeah. then. Randy Savage defeated the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, man. <laughs> Wow, I, I, I Don, I don't remember anything else of the of what happened. I just remember I got to touch my guy, the guy that comes off the top rope from the island of Fiji. Did you Did you get to see Miss uh, Savage's wife, Miss Elizabeth? Did you uh, Did you, did I, you get to see her? I I, uh, I don't recall. Oh, what? Yeah. He recalls. <laughs> I don't, oh. I don't even know her name. I, I was just oh. trying to watch my guy wrestle, man. You didn't know Miss Elizabeth? No. Oh, you're such, no. you're such a liar. I know you're such a liar. <laughs> such a liar. It's true. It's hidden. Such a liar. Oh boy, mercy! Uh, well, that'll put a wrap on this episode. So let's <laughs> yeah. transition out of this one. That'll no be calling your shot for this story week. Of the week. <laughs> Ben, what do you got? Oh, man. I'm going to try to climb back out of that rabbit hole somehow, but I don't <laughs> So our episode's running a little long in the tooth here, so I'm going to keep this one short and sweet. But my feel-good story of the week, does everybody remember watching Jerry Lewis host the MDA events that he would host every year? Oh, yeah. Did you guys know that those are back? Really? Uh, Kevin Hart ran a, the MDA Muscular Dystrophy Association uh, telethon yesterday, and uh, they were able to raise $10.5 million for MDA wow. and some of the other organizations. Uh, Kevin Hart also has a charity that some of the money went to. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was cool that I, I remember watching those as a kid with Jerry Lewis. I mean, he did them for decades, but um, obviously he's passed now, but they revived the telethon and uh, Kevin Hart ran it this this weekend and was able to to raise a lot of money for a, a good cause to help uh, individuals and families with uh, members of their family struggling with uh, muscular dystrophy and some other physical uh, disabilities. So kind of a cool, feel good, feel good story of the week. Very cool. So we're going to transition, fix your eyes. Uh, I think one of us had a good idea to share conversion testimony. I think, Jeremy, that might have been you that uh, said that. Am I thinking right? Um, I don't know. I don't Who suggest I, I don't that. Was that remember. Ben? No, that was Ben. You're right. That was Ben. Uh, 
Ben said, "Hey, let's uh, let's let's focus. Fix your eyes over the next uh, six podcasts on uh, on our conversion testimonies, which I think which I think is great. So uh, I get the opportunity to share tonight. So it's interesting. This one kind of ties back to our first uh, topic of the episode, right? So grateful to have been born into a you know a Christian family and was in church all the time, as as was mentioned, and so heard from a very young age." Uh, the gospel, and yeah, at the age of five, uh, recognized this this gospel was for me, and at, it was at that time when I was five, trusted in Jesus, and you know, placed my faith in Him, and and, and trusted in Him, and you know, kind of being part of the church. Proceeded about a year later, uh, went through the classes. I still remember. You know, going through the classes, and I think uh, it was it was Dr. Ernest Pickering. Uh, he would he he led the baptism classes, and I remember going into his study, and I thought it was the coolest thing. I was six, I felt like I was shaking like a leaf going in there, but it was really cool that the head pastor was teaching us about you know, what does baptism mean and such. And and so at the age of six, I was baptized, and you know, kind of grew up in the church, and you know, ultimately went on to college and studied uh, youth ministries. But uh, it's interesting. So you know. Said, boy, what, what do you remember about five? I don't remember a whole lot, and I think you know, as I kind of, you know, do you have a date and a time? Do you know, you know, do you know that you're saved? And I, I remember during a class in seminary, uh, one of the professors challenged. He said, he said, guys, it's not so much about a date and a time. He said, what are you believing now? Where are you at now? And that always kind of stuck with me. And, you know, as we as we kind of use this as a fix your eyes, uh, just challenge each and each of us, starting with myself and us. And then hopefully anybody who's listening, you know, what are you believing now? You know, you can we can point back to a date and time. But I think the evidence of a believer is obviously the it's kind of the perseverance of the saints. Right. You, you demonstrate whether you are. Uh, in the faith by continuing to persevere. It's not about a life of perfection, but it's also not about a date and a time. And I got it written in my Bible. And so I'm good now. I can go do whatever I want. So I think that's something that's always been challenging to me. What am I believing now? Not thinking, hey, at five, I'm good. I'm set. No, I, I need to I need to remember that there's a high calling and and each and every day, each and every you know moment, I need to be trusting in that grace that saved me at age five. Uh, to continue to do that and continue to 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 do his good work in me. So that's a that's a kind of a, a brief version of the testimony, and um, yeah, just encourage everybody to continue believing because that's not a it's not a once, you know. Though though I do believe in eternal security, it, it's our role to to keep believing, not just believe once and then do whatever we want. It's it's keep believing, keep going deeper. And so just challenge all of us, keep, uh, keep believing, keep trusting in that gospel that saved us. It will be the truth that, uh, that saves us, um, in the end when our time comes or when Jesus comes. So, all right, that is a wrap on episode 13. This was six in the mix talking faith, family, sports, and politics. Find our episodes on Apple podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Review us and leave a comment. Visit our Facebook page at Six in the Mix Podcast and comment on what topics you'd like us to discuss. We are also on Twitter at Six in the Mix Pod. Join us on our journey.